From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This hour, you are going to hear a courageous, compelling, and truly incredible story. It's about survival, death, fatherhood, and overcoming the loss of a partner. Our conversation is part of our About Dad Time series, though I should note right here at the start, this conversation is heavier. Here with us to share his remarkable journey is Forsyth County Sheriff Bobby Kimbrough. His career in law enforcement spans 40 years. He started out at the Winston-Salem Police Department in his hometown. He worked for some time as an arson investigator for the fire department and eventually worked for the DEA as a special agent with the United States Department of Justice. That was until 2016. In 2018, Bobby Kimbrough was sworn in as sheriff in North Carolina's fourth largest county. He's also the father of seven sons. He's been raising them as a single father since he was widowed in 2005. Sheriff Bobby Kimbrough, welcome to Do South. Welcome. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've got to ask this right off the top. Uh, When people hear that you have seven sons, what's the most common reaction? Does the mouth go agape? Do the eyes go wide? Uh, the common uh, comment is that you have a starting five plus two. Uh, you know, that's the most comments that you hear. How did that happen? Uh, some people know the story. Then some people will say, how did it happen? But uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's what it is. Tell me their names. So my oldest boy is Bobby Franklin Kimbrough, uh, the third. Then there's Jameson Franklin Kimbrough. Uh, then there is Jordan Franklin Kimbrough. Then there is Bryce Franklin Kimbrough. Then there is uh, Jalen, Christian, uh, and Isaiah. And are all seven uh, blessed with the middle name Franklin? Except for two. Except for two. And where does that name come from, Franklin? Franklin. So my father is Bobby Franklin Sr. And so uh, we kept the Franklin going, Bobby Franklin III. Then Jameson Franklin, Jordan Franklin, Bryce Franklin. Okay. What's the age range on the seven? Uh, they range from 18 to 42. How many grandkids do you have? I have one, two, three, four grandkids. All right. Congra- how, do you, how do you like being a granddad? I love it. Uh, I don't see my grandkids as much. Uh, they One is my granddaughter is in Atlanta. My other three grandkids are in Nairobi, Kenya. I want to step back in time, 19 years, uh, and this is, um, well, you know what? I'm going to step back in time a little bit further than that. Tell me when you got married. I got married in 1988. Oh, that's a tough question. Sorry. I threw you on the spot with that. Yeah. You got married in 1988, uh, Mm -hmm. and you and your bride, Clementine, you get married in 1988, and you all welcome seven boys to your family. Uh, what is that period just just briefly like? So um, while I was in high school, my son Bobby was born, Bobby Franklin III. Um, so Bobby lived with my parents while I was away in college, uh, started off at Fight for College. And so um, me and Clem grew up together. We grew up in the same neighborhood. Uh, I told Clem I was going to marry her when she was 12 years old. And uh, she told me I was crazy. Uh, years later, uh, I reminded her I wasn't so crazy after all. And so, you know, it's rare that you get to marry the love of your life. It's rare that you get to marry somebody that has known you all your life. Right. 
And so we mustered through it all, you know, hard times, good times, bad times. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was it, it was a good run. There were some bad times, like, you know, in most marriages, there were some times when I didn't know if I wanted to stay or if she wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we made a commitment that we was going to work through it together. Um, along the way, I made some mistakes in our marriage. And um, she said, I love you more than the mistakes that you've made. Mm -hmm. And so we worked it out. In 2005, your wife, Clem, passed away. She did. Was she sick? She wasn't. So um, at the time when Clem passed, I was like any other Monday is what it was. It was a Monday. Um, every weekend I used to load my truck up, my Suburban up, and we would go to various colleges around North Carolina. Well, that Sunday we had driven down to North Carolina State University, and my son Jameson, who was in high school at the time, uh, wanted to see what the football stadium looked like. So we drove down, of course, looked in from the outside, took a couple kids with me, and they were eating sunflower seeds in the truck. So Monday, we got up and I uh, was taking my son to work out. I stopped by my auntie's house where Clem was getting off work, dropping Jalen off. And took Jamison to work out, came back home and said, hey, I'm going to vacuum the sunflower seeds out. I'll bring everybody lunch back. Um, on my way back home, I was going about an hour or so. Uh, phone rings. Jamison said, mom is sleeping in the laundry room. Um, I said, what do you mean sleep in the laundry room? He said, sleep. So I started driving back to the house real fast, and um, he said she don't look good. I said, dial 911. Uh, Jamison would have been about 13 then. And so um, I was right there at Limbo Road in 40 when he called me. And I pulled up, and I ran into the house. And, you know, the line of work that I've been in, I've, I've seen uh, – bodies before. She was cold to the touch. I started trying to do CPR on her. About that time, I heard the uh, EMS and paramedics running in the house, and uh, she died. So at the time, we had no idea uh, what she had died of. She didn't. And so, just like in death, we want death to be an honorable death. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, in life, People think of people who've had an addiction as less than. And so for years I told my kids that my wife died of an aneurysm after I got the uh, autopsy report. And, in fact, she had died of methadone intoxicity. Mm -hmm. uh, and life was difficult after that. Uh, I had to learn how to live off of one income, and because of how she died, that affected the insurance policy. Uh, anytime you die of a self-induced overdose, that affects the policies, the fine print. And life was difficult. Um, I learned, had to learn how to live off the dollar menu. I had to learn how to oodles and noodles. I had to learn how to put my children first and everything I wanted to do last. And um, 
a year and a half later, uh, I couldn't afford to pay the bills. Uh, we lost the home that we built, 205 Oakmont. Uh, I lost it. They foreclosed on it. I tell that story now. I've told it for the last five years because all my life I've wondered how God has put me in places that I've had to learn how to survive in. Why? And I realized uh, during COVID when we were putting people out of their homes and uh, I called down to Raleigh, spoke with the Chief Justice then, Ms. Beasley, and said, how can we stop this? Because it was bothering me having my men go out and do that. And so during the press conference, I told the people that I know what it's like to be asked to leave a place that's yours Mm -hmm. with all the memories and everything that's in there. And so I had to learn how to readjust. I had to learn some things. Uh, It was one of the most difficult points in my life, uh, difficult times in my life. It was the lowest point of my life. I thought about uh, suicide, thought about a lot of things. Uh, I'll never forget the night that I thought about it. I had went to my parents' house, and my mother was looking at me, and she said, what is wrong with you? I've never cussed my mother before, Hmm. uh, never. And I told my mother, I don't want to hear that And I left. She said, you need to pray. And I'll never forget, I said to my mother, how am I going to pray to someone that I don't even know? And she said, but he knows you. And so I went down 311, stopped in the cemetery about 11-something, looked at the grave, and I decided that I was going to do something when I got home. And I was talking to the grave and just had a lot of guilt going on in me. Like, you know, could I have been a better husband? Uh, Could I have spent more time at home? Could I have done so many things? You know, you what if and so many things. uh, Could I have been a better friend? My mind was just racing. And I'll never forget when I got home and decided I was going to do something to myself, I said a prayer and that morning when I woke up, I realized that I had had the same clothes on for three days. Hmm. And I'll never forget running through the house. Um, I'll never forget running through the house screaming, crying. And um, and I said to myself, I got to get myself together. And... As a result of that, I realized that I got to get it together. And that's when at that moment that I realized we're going to survive this. And I promised my boys that no matter what happens, I'm going to be here. I promised my boys that we're going to get through this together. And my prayer from that point on was, Lord, allow me to see my boys grown and can make it on their own. After the break, we'll hear more from Sheriff Bobby Kimbrough about navigating grief while raising his seven sons. You're listening to Do South.
This is Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We're spending the hour with Bobby Kimbrough, who became a single dad instantaneously when his wife died unexpectedly in 2005. Grief, despair, and darkness followed. Before the break, Kimbrough talked about making a promise to always be there for his seven sons after his wife passed. It was a challenging promise to keep. There are several things I, I want to ask you. Uh, that moment, if it weren't for your seven boys, do you have that moment? If it wasn't for my boys, I would have shot myself. Uh, the thing that kept me from doing it was, what kind of SOB would I be to leave them motherless and fatherless? Um, what kind of what kind of man would I be to not be present in my boy's life, knowing what it's like in this life without a father? Only can imagine. My father's been in my life all my life. And uh, I realized that no matter what I'm feeling, no matter what I go through, I want to be present in my children's life. Um, for years, I, I, I never talked about it. And it wasn't until 2017 when I was running uh, the John Hinton asked me this question. You know, they do this background on candidates that are running. Let me just pause real quick. John Hinton, Winston Sam Journal reporter. John exactly. Hinton? Okay. John Hinton, the, the journal reporter, calls me on the phone. Uh, and he says, uh, Skimbro, uh, we see that you're running for sheriff. And of course, we do our own little check on candidates that are running. And we see that you don't have any criminal record. We didn't expect that. But we see where you lost your house, foreclosed on your house. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, how do you expect the people to trust you with a $70 million budget and you lost your house? Hmm. And I said to him, I said, you know what, Mr. Hinton? I said, let me tell you how the people can trust me because I'm no different than a lot of Americans that have been through some hardships and financial hardships, and I made it through. I said, I've owned two houses since then. And the reason that I'm the candidate and the reason that is because I not only have compassion, but I've been through what a lot of people are gonna go through and going through, and I know how to get them through. And so two months later, the guy that I was running against decided he was going to go and pull a uh, death certificate. And one of the big platforms was the opioid epidemic. I had just left from Raleigh speaking on the number of people that die every year from opioids. And the next day he started talking about how can this guy talk about opioids when he won't talk about how his wife died. I was so angry with him. I mean, I was angry, 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 angry because it opened up wounds that I had never talked about. My kids never knew. And so my campaign manager, Cindy, uh, lover, uh, she said to me, tell your story. Cindy knew the story. She said, you need to tell your story. 
And so I told the story of that, according to the autopsy report, how she died, and according to things that we learned later, that um, she uh, had an addiction. And, you know, people say it all the time, how do you know or how did you not know being a DEA agent? And the answer that I gave was, how many people check their spouse's pockets every day when they come home? You don't. You never know what someone else is doing. People are having relationships, and they never know who their spouses are. Sure. So how do you know if your spouse is doing this? But one of the things that when I look back over that, at the time I was busy being this super special agent that I wasn't present like I should have been. Mm -hmm. I was not present in my family like I should have been. And that was one of the things that changed my life to where I made a point to be present after that. I'm going to have to take a break here in about sure. a moment. Sure. But I do want to ask you this. Sure. Seven years later. And excuse this question if this question makes you angry, angry, angry. Was it a moment that was a, you were able to create it, manifest it into a blessing in disguise? Is it the messaging and the mechanism in which it came out was BS, but the fact that it did come, has that allowed you to heal? It has. You know, that's, that's interesting you asked that is because my spirituality has become a lot stronger. And I realized that so many times people go through things in life and we don't tell our story, we don't share our story, but that's a part of the healing mechanism by sharing what you've been through. And now I have, I have no hesitation telling people I've been broke before. I have no hesitation telling people what I've been through before because I can say, look where I am now. And so what I've learned is that all facts are not final. They're not. It was a fact that I was broken then. It was a fact that I was having difficult times. And so... I'm not ashamed of that anymore. And what they did for me is that what they meant for bad by trying to say that to me, all they did was make me stronger. Bobby Kimbrough is the Forsyth County Sheriff, a duly elected post here in North Carolina. He is here on Due South sharing uh, his heartbreaking and heart-wrenching story. Uh, your wife, Clem, was a nurse and uh, had been... Uh, using narcotics, using drugs that she had access to through a professional capacity, I gather. Uh, and you talk about uh, just a couple of moments ago, dealing with this question of, well, how did you, how did you not know? How did you not see it? Were there signs? Did you miss them? And, and you addressed that uh, a couple of minutes ago. What I'm curious about is, is letting, letting go. And maybe that's not even the right way to think about it, but moving forward, accepting, understanding that She's gone. And however terrible and awful it might have been, what, whatever you might have or might not have missed, there's nothing you can do about it now. And I, I, I'm sorry to sound trite about it, but from the standpoint of like, okay, at some point after she passed, you had to move forward. You had to get to that dollar menu. You had to just try to pay the bills as a father of seven boys. Did you... I, how did you do that? How did you accept it and, and move on? How did you compartmentalize and, and ignore it? Like, how? So, 
I joined the church. I joined Union Baptist Church uh, at the time. Uh, Dr. Sir Walter Mack um, asked me to come and join the church. Uh, I realized that if I didn't shift, I was going to die. If I didn't move, I was going to die. Um, I had to shift my mind. I had to shift how I thought. I had to get out of that space of pull me, woe me. I had to realize wasn't nobody coming to save me. People would give you their condolences at the time, but at the end of the day, life going to keep moving. I had to learn how to put some things in a box and close them. And I had to reinvent myself. And when I travel around the country now speaking on mindset management, I travel around the country talking about Beyond Midnight, one of the books that I've written. Everything comes down to a mindset. Everything comes down to we all have uh, desired destinations in life that we want to arrive at. But the meditation will determine that desired destination that you're trying to get to. Uh, how you think and how you talk and how you're presenting. And I realized that in those moments that I was by myself crying in the closet, I used to go and sit in the closet and cry because I didn't want my children to hear me crying or see me crying. And in darkness, I could see some things that, signs that I missed, things that I missed uh, when I was by myself, things that I started to reinvent myself, uh, you know, I tell people all the time, there's a person inside of you that you have not met yet. And you don't meet that person until a crisis show up or something shows up. You're not the same person you were five years ago. And you won't be the same person you are five years from now. But during that time that you're in events and situations, cause you to tap in to things that you never knew you had. Because I had spent most of my life as a special agent behind the scenes, moving in silence, moving in darkness, not being out front, not being the guy talking or leading. I was the guy following, mm -hmm. accomplish a mission, accomplish the assignment. And as I started to reinvent myself, I started speaking at different places for $50. People would say, come and speak to a group of kids, mm -hmm. and they would give me a gas card. Sure. Uh, They would give me food. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized that all the things I've been through, God had given me a story, a testimonial, and a whole new skill set. And that drive started kicking in. And it started fueling. And it got stronger every day, every day, to where the point that I believe there's nothing that I cannot do now. Nothing. Um, nothing. A central figure, as I have gathered, in this chapter in your life was your dad, your father. Without question. Tell us, please, a little bit about how your relationship with him, what you gleaned from him as a father and as a man, w was instrumental in you carrying through, and and what did you, what did you bring to your seven boys? So... My father's been in my life, all my life. Uh, my father's still living now. Uh, he has Alzheimer's, but he's still living. Uh, I would not be here if it wasn't for my father. 
My father taught me how, no matter what mistakes you make in life, own them. My father taught me what it was like to be a giving person. He taught me what it was like to be a servant. Uh, he taught me what it was like to fight even when the odds are against you. Um, and from that, my father told me that no matter what you go through, just pray and believe it every day. And so when I was going through, I would go see and talk to my father every day. And he would slip me a couple of dollars here and there um, and tell me, uh, hold your head up, baby boy. It's his favorite line, baby boy. I'm his only child. Hold your head up. Hmm. And uh, take care of them boys. That's all that matters. And he inspired me. My mother and my father became my rock. They became my babysitters. They became the place where I ate at when I couldn't feed them. They became my my voice of reasoning. And so um, I say that to say this is that fatherhood is, 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 is so important in this day and time because we have a, a generation of fatherless men, fatherless kids. And how, how can they learn if nobody teaches them? I'll never forget at one of the most difficult times um, in my life, doing all of that period, I fathered a son and I was taking care of him financially every two weeks. And things always hit me when I least expect them. And I was in church this Sunday and something, I was just something come over me. And so I had keys to the church and I locked myself in the church that evening and you know, just wanted to be by myself and pray and reflect. And I asked the question as I sat there in front of the altar, praying to the son, through the father, to the father, asking for blessings and this, that, and other. And it hit me, how can you ask for this when you're not present in your youngest boy's life? Isaiah. I got up out of the church that evening, went to his mother's house, my youngest boy. And I ended up getting full custody of him at five years old because of the same situation that, um, and you may have saw the story that they did uh, on television about his situation. And um, he's a premier athlete now. And he told me the other day, he came home for the weekend and he said, Dad, I would not have made it this far without you being in my life. And he thanked me. And I realized that while I'm there by myself now as an empty nester, all of my boys are doing their thing off in college. The last two in college, one at UNC Charlotte, uh, all of my college graduates except for one, last two are, uh, in school now, UNC Charlotte, one same state. I realized that it's important to be in their lives. It's important to be a father. It's important when they have issues that only a man can give them. It's important to be present because when your your absence is what causes some of the confusion that they have in their lives, the guidance, the gains that I see every day in the communities across this country, across this 
state is because there is absent of a father, a strong male figure in the lives of these men's lives. I see that every day. I know that to be factual. And so I understand that I have to be present for my boys, even though they're still grown. They still call me with issues. They still call me with issues. Sheriff Bobby Kimbrough is your guest here on Due South. It's uh, another conversation of about dad time. We're talking about fatherhood. Uh, your youngest, Isaiah Kimbrough, is a wide receiver at Winston-Salem State University. He's a Ram. He graduates <laughs> when? Uh, he has three years left. Okay. Tell me, because I don't know, and share with our listeners, please, because they don't know. What kind of father are you? So if you ask my boys, they say that I'm very strict, I'm very stern. Uh, they will probably tell you that I will listen to them, but uh, I'm going to tell them how it's going to do, how they're going to do it. And if they refuse to do it my way, then don't ask for my resources. Uh, they will tell you that my father's favorite line is, is that uh, I'm not going to let a child make a grown man decision. And I'm the kind of father that I'm going to always be there for them. Even if they're wrong, I'm going to be there for them, but I'm going to speak the truth. Uh, I've had some situations with my boys that uh, they were wrong, and I told them how they're going to handle it. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk into the court and say I was wrong and ask for forgiveness. Uh, I can think of a situation that's been a long, long, long time ago, you know, my oldest boy had to appear in court one time for something that he did. And I said, I'm not paying for a lawyer. It's a waste of time. What you're going to do is walk in the courtroom and tell the judge, you did it. You're sorry. And you'll never do it again. If I'm doing math correctly in my head, there's about 25, 26 years between your oldest and the baby. And the baby. Facts. Talk to me about... Were there different phases of fatherhood? How how much different? So the truth is the truth is the truth. Twenty five years later, the truth is the truth. I've raised in the same principle. It's gonna you you're gonna do the right thing. You're gonna be respectful. You know, uh, one thing that I've always told my boys is that my father said this to me. He said that I've worked hard to maintain the respect of my last name. He said, and I expect you to make it honorable as well. And I tell my boys the same thing. Don't bring no embarrassment to this family. Always do the right thing. Even when it's difficult, do the right thing. And uh, I was a very disciplinary parent. Uh, i never forget, I went to school at uh, Kernersville Middle School Elementary. Uh, Jordan had was disrespectful to the teacher talking or something. I told the teacher the next time he does it, give me a call. Um, she called the office. I told them I was on the way. I went in the classroom, pulled him out of his classroom, took him in the bathroom, whooped his butt, and took him back to the classroom. On the other side, more with Sheriff Bobby Kimber on fatherhood after loss. This is Dude South.
This is Due South from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri here in our Durham studios with Sheriff Bobby Kimbrough for our fatherhood series about dad time. You yourself said here a few minutes ago, you're not the same person you were five years ago. You're going to be a different person in five years. God willing, we're all here in five years. You're not the same father you were uh, 10 years ago Mm -hmm. or 15 years ago. So how are you, how are you different perhaps raising uh, Isaiah and raising Jalen and Christian and the, some of your younger boys. The difference, the difference is I talk more to the younger boys. Before, it was a no-nonsense because I was at a different stress level then. I didn't have time to talk. I was trying to figure out how we going to eat. I was trying to figure out a lot of things. Uh, the younger boys, um, they have grown up uh, with spoons in their mouth, so to speak. Um, so they get probably the better me, the dad that will sit and talk, uh, every Sunday. Now we all convene at the house, uh, your house. Yeah. Uh, Clemens or in Clemens. Exactly. James and Jordan for the boys will convene at the house. Um, and we sit and talk, um, cut up, discuss problems. Uh, the other boys, uh, the other three, are like I said, Nairobi, Atlanta, and Florida, but the the four that are in close proximity, we convene, you know, talk, uh, FaceTime the other boys, uh, and we just cut up and talk, and so the younger boys have gotten the better of me, as I said, because uh, finances are different, <laughs> uh, timing is different, so I, I guess. That would be the difference. The younger boys always, the older boys would say, uh, dad wouldn't have went for that, you know. With seven boys, what have you found to be? The shortcomings. Shortcomings. Of course. So my shortcomings was, I don't know how to cook. Mm. So every day we ate out. McDonald's uh, became uh, our restaurant. Uh, Golden Corral was uh, a specialty, right? And so even now, uh, I haven't had a stove on since my wife passed. Still to this day. Still to this day. I bought a um, house three years ago, beautiful home. Um, stove has not been on. House before that, stove has not been on. Um, and so the shortcomings would be that I didn't know how to be a mother. I wasn't a loving father. My kids would tell you, uh, dad wasn't the kind of dad that, tells you uh, he loves you every day. He wasn't a huggy kind of guy. But now the, the younger boys, I hug them. I tell the boys in our group chat now, I love them. You know, we have a group chat that we carry on with all the time. And now I tell people I love them all the day, all the time. I walk through the office every day and tell people, has anybody told you they love you today? Because I realize the power of words. I realize that they need to hear that. You know, Jamison, you know, who found his mother, tells me all the time, Dad, I watch you with the, with the with the little boys, as he referred to them as, and he said, you are a totally different kind of dad. Mm-hmm. And Jordan is always has been like the mother figure for the boys. Like, you know, dad, they'll bring me the problems and then I'll figure out how to tell you about the problems. That's the kind of way it works. And the, and the thing in the house was the older boys had to help me take care of the young boys. You had to help me because I'm only one person. And I'll always say, how many people do you see when you look at me, son? One dad, 
well, I, don't, I can't do that then. I'm only one person. And so uh, those were the shortcomings because you are only one person, only so many hours in the day. And so, but the shortcomings, we learned to live through them. Uh, we haven't had a Christmas tree up. That's a shortcoming. You know, the kids, you know, we don't, we don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, Christmas Why? We still find Christmas is awkward. Because Clem's missing or right. because she passed around that time? No, 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 because she's missing. So we haven't had a Christmas tree in now in in no house. Years, years. We haven't had a Christmas tree in twenty years. Since two thousand five, we haven't had a Christmas tree up. You've got seven boys, and you just had a, yeah. a holiday season. Do y'all exchange gifts? No. So what we okay. do on Christmas is the younger boys. I give them money. We don't do exchanging the gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, we go to my auntie's house. Uh, she'll fix food and everybody convene in my Aunt Doris's house. But no, we don't cook. We don't put up a Christmas tree or nothing. i tell you a funny story. So not funny, but to show you how sure. it affects us. So um, I moved into this neighborhood about three years ago uh, when they diagnosed my father. So I was looking for a house that had an in-law suite. And so we had to hire somebody to come in and stay with my dad every day while I'm gone. And this particular day, I came home, and there was decorations Hmm. on the door inside the house. And I got angry. And just so happened, Jameson came by um, and saw it. And he's like, Dad, well, who put this up? And I said, she did. And so I asked her to please take it down. And she did. And she was upset that I asked her to take it down. And I told her that um, I understood her kindness. But when I look back at it, um, I probably should have left it up. There was a time to break the ice, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying every year that I'm going to hire somebody to come in and cook the next holiday. This past Christmas, you know, we have this beautiful kitchen and have yet to cut this stove on. I said, I don't even know if the stove worked. How did you, how do you celebrate and keep alive Clem's spirit and her energy? And, and how do you think and talk about her with your sons? So now we're all at a different place now. And it's amazing what a day or years mean and make. Now we'll sit around and remember stories about her. We'll tell stories about her. Um, we, if you walk in the house, time you walk in, there's a sitting room. There's a picture of my mother uh, who died two years ago, picture of my grandmother, Clem, people who have passed on. And so, you know, uh, when I come in the house now that I'm by myself, I may sit in the room and have a conversation with myself, uh, laughing, thinking. Um, every year, uh, we pay tribute by, we created what we call never walk alone, which is in Winston-Salem, what we do to, um, talk about the opioid epidemic. How do we change the narrative? And what we do is we let people write the names of people that have passed on from an overdose or something. And so, uh, I could tell you a week doesn't go by that. I don't think about it and reflect on it. And to be honest with you, I think that that's probably what has kept me from getting married again. Hmm. Uh, I, I, at some point, I've got to release it uh, and let it go. 
and go on and live whatever this next half or next quarter of life God has for me with someone. Is it fair to say that there is more joy and more laughter in your existence today than there was 19 years ago? Or is that still a daily challenge? Wow. I had more laughter and joy when she was here. Um, a lot more laughter and joy. Um, and just to be clear, I, I was not asking about when she was here. I'm asking about in the aftermath, 06, 07, 08. No, I don't have a lot of joy and laughter going on this last six years. You know, it's, um, you know, as a sheriff, I'm seeing so many different things, the worst of people every day, dealing with a lot of things. I think that right now, I have learned how, years later, how to deal with it better. Mm -hmm. uh, years later, I've learned how to talk about it without crying. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I could have never done this, yeah. never done this. Uh, I think that I did a lot of writing. Uh, I did a lot of crying. I did a lot of screaming, getting it right myself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm at a better place right now, but laughter, no. But a better place, yeah, if that makes sense, you know. I don't do a lot of laughter now. I'm on a reach here, admittedly reach. Sure. You talk about this personal journey, and you're you're sharing it incredibly and eloquently, and you are also the sheriff in the fifth largest county. Fourth. Fourth, thank you. You're also the sheriff of the fourth largest county in, in North Carolina, more than a quarter million people. I'm going to extrapolate or try to here. How do you implement what you've learned oh. to your deputies, to your $70 million budget, to better, uh, I'm using the word policing, even though it's deputizing, right? Um, how do you bring this? You know, that's, that's interesting that you asked that question. My life experiences have shaped how I lead now. I lead with compassion. Uh, I lead with what I call community credibility. I spend more time in the community than anyone ever thought of or anyone prior to me did. I have programs that help. We have mentoring programs. We have schools that we run during the summer uh, for, for men. We have a mentoring program that's starting next week for kids, for males. Uh, my leadership now is to be present, be present, make a difference, change the narrative. So my leadership now, uh, from everything that I've been through, I look at things as addressing the root cause rather than just keep picking at the fruit that the tree bears. How do we address social issues? You know, I, I, I operate from this man's low hierarchy of needs. You know, you'll never reach self-actualization if you don't have the basic needs met. So I look at policing now totally different than I did, you know, because you can't lock this problem up. Mm -hmm. You know, you have boys out here carrying guns, and I did say boys not even teenagers, boys. And so now the way that we manage and police in Forsyth County is that we realize that we have to be a part of the community. We can't just be the pilly people locking folk up. No. I wanted to ask you about John Neville. And yeah. I, I wasn't planning on asking about John Neville when I came in here today. It wasn't even ask on it. my mind. Ask it. John Neville was a man who... While in custody in Forsyth County, right. was restrained by Forsyth County deputies and was he, he ultimately was he ultimately died. This was a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, due to the way in which he was restrained. Right. 
no criminal files were ever, uh, no criminal charges were ever brought if memory serves. Mm -hmm. You offered an apology to the Neville family if memory serves. Facts. My question is, what did you learn from that moment, from that ordeal, that story, that instance? What did I learn from that story? Yeah, from John Neville's death. What came of it? So a lot of things what people don't know, right? The case has been settled, right? Mm-hmm. What people don't know is that it was the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office that notified the family, that notified Sean. What people don't know is that the family has a lot of respect for me for a lot of reasons, right? Sean and I, I've talked to Sean. You know, he hugged me. Uh, what I learned from that is that we did the right thing. I stood up and I said, good people made bad decisions that day. I said that. When lawyers told me not to apologize, you can't tell me what to do because an apology is admitting wrong. And I said we were wrong. Sean Neville, who you just referenced there, again, if memory serves, is John Neville's son. Without question. What I learned from that is that we did the right thing. I stood up and I said, good people made bad decisions that day. I said that. When lawyers told me not to apologize, you can't tell me what to do because an apology is admitting wrong. And I said we were wrong. I'm proud of how we handled the aftermath of that. You know why? Because we told the truth and we did the right thing. And the family knows that. And one of the pillars that I stand on every day It's on our challenge corner is accountability, transparency, and integrity every day. Because as I sit in the office of the people, I'm not ashamed of nothing I've done in my life. I'm not proud of it, but I share my story. And by telling my story and sharing my story, it'll help somebody else along the way. Because no matter what my situation is or was, it wasn't my final destination. Who would have thought that in 2007, the same agency that foreclosed, or excuse me, that served the foreclosed notice on me and my boy's house at 205 Oakmont Park Court, that in 2018, the people would vote that same man and family in as the sheriff of the county. You can't make that up. That's full circle. Full, that's full circle. When you think about your seven sons, what is one thing you hope that they take from their time with you as their father, that they take from you as dad and instill in their kids? And what is one thing that you hope they maybe leave, maybe don't take from, from Papa? From me? From you. I hope they become a more patient. Uh, I hope they have patience. I hope they're not as hard as, and critical on themselves as I've been on me. Uh, one thing that I hope that they take is that I hope that they take the attitude that no matter what happens in their life or what situations that they go through, they can overcome it. I hope that they be productive citizens. And as my dad would say, each generation should become stronger, wiser, and financially better. I hope that they take that same attitude uh, be good to their children and be good to this to, to themselves 
and be good to everything around them and be good, productive people. That's what I, and do what makes you happy. And that's what I tell my boys. Bobby Kimbrough is the Forsyth County Sheriff and a father to seven sons. He's been uh, sharing his remarkable story with us here on Due South. Thank you sincerely for the time. Thank you. This is Due South, a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. And our theme music was produced by Quilla. For co-host Leonita Inge, I'm Jeff Tabiri. Thanks for listening. There's a man at my house, he's so big and strong He goes to work each day and he stays all day long He comes home each night looking tired and beat He sits down at the dinner table and has a bite to eat Never a frown, always a smile When he says to me, how's my child? I said that I've been studying hard all day in school Trying very hard